Oh, you lay readers out there were really jealous. That wasn't your reading today. <laughs> Stephanie did a fabulous job. She really did. If you know those names, she did a great job. That was great. You know, it's interesting about the book of Nehemiah. A lot of people either perceive that book, see that book, read that book, and immediately move on. They don't spend a lot of time with the book of Nehemiah, which I think is unfortunate. And part of the reason is when you get the lists of names like that, you want, oh, oh, forget this. You really do. And there are other books in the Bible that have lists of names like that as well. But Nehemiah is a real treasure if you really spend time delving into it and understanding it. And I've had the privilege of teaching Nehemiah on numerous occasions, including another portion of it, not this portion, uh, nine days ago at the Anglican Leadership Institute at the Isle of Palms. Uh, Peter Moore organized this and set it up uh, several years ago. And what he does is he issues invitations throughout the world to Anglican clergy that haven't had the training and teaching that we've had the privilege of having in the United States. And so bishops and clergy from throughout the world come to this, and there were bishops, for example, from Nigeria, South Sudan, um, Ghana, and Brazil, Korea, Tanzania. And uh, what was neat was a lot of these guys I got to meet afterwards, uh, a couple of them before, but mostly after, and they were issuing invitations, please come and teach at my country, which was really interesting, trying to figure out if I would ever do that. Uh, but it was, it was very, very sweet. But teaching the book of Nehemiah is a treat. I have come to love the book of Nehemiah. And it has great teaching on principles of leadership if you really spend time with it. And that's not something I came up with. Actually, I've read several books over the years on uh, on books talking about Nehemiah and leadership. The first one I read years ago was written by Chuck Swindoll, for some of you that know Chuck Swindoll, called Hand Me Another Brick. That's the first book that I read, you know, talking about Nehemiah and leadership. Then several years later, I read a book called Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders. And I have taught both of these as well. Uh, I taught this to... Uh, a couple of vestries and some uh, leaders in our congregation. And then eventually I would go on to actually write my own, you know, if you will, commentary on Nehemiah that I've taught here a couple of times. And I actually taught over in Tanzania and took copies for them back in 2012. So Nehemiah is very near and dear to my heart. And most recently for this class I taught on Friday, a week and a half ago, and for the Strategic Planning Committee here, we read a book called Visioneering by Andy Stanley that also talks about the book of Nehemiah. So you can see how Nehemiah just keeps getting recycled because he has such great principles of leadership. And that's what we see here as well. And instead of giving you a ton of background, uh, which I'd love to do, to really unpack the passage that we have before us today, I want to touch on just a little background because the key comes in chapter 8, which we have before us, verse 3. And what I mean by that is it reads that the people stood and had the law read and interpreted to them 
for approximately, by the way, you didn't catch this, but approximately six hours that day. The day that was set apart to be holy, six hours. And that's what we're going to do right now. No, just kidding. (laughs) But all those names that Stephanie read, those were the ones that went around and made sure all these people understood what was being taught. Because what had happened over the years is the people had drifted from really understanding who the Lord is and what the Lord wanted for them. And these are the people of God. And they had so drifted that Ezra got out the law and said, this is what we need to be about. Nehemiah had come feeling called by the Lord when he was in the service of a foreign king as a cupbearer, which is an important position, and that's the background we won't go into, feeling called by the Lord to come to Jerusalem because he heard that it was, it was in disarray. Ezra and Zerubbabel, the governor, had come to rebuild the temple. And even though the people had the temple, which represents the presence of God for the people, you would think that that would rally them. You would think that that would bring the people together. It didn't. Because the people were still divided. The people were still being influenced by foreigners and foreign gods. There was still division because of socioeconomic conditions. There was suspicion. And so Nehemiah felt called by the Lord to go, and he said what we need to do after studying the situation is rebuild the wall. But that was the physical reality of beginning definition for the people. But it was only a physical reality. It was a sacramental moment. Let me tell you what I mean by sacramental moment. If you've been through the discovery class, you are reminded of what a sacrament, the definition is of a sacrament. It's an outward and visible sign of an inward reality that needs to take place. The outward and visible sign was the wall being built. The inward reality that needed to take place was the people's lives needed to be defined by the Word of God because they had lost their anchor. Even though they had the temple that represented His presence, they had lost their anchor. They had drifted. And so once they had the wall, the physical definition, Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the now governor said, we are going to define God's people as holy, separate, that's what the word holy means, different, God's way. By pulling out his word and saying, this is what we're to be about. See, they had done the hard work of building the wall. Does anyone know what sweat equity is? Have you ever heard that term before? Sweat equity is a term used by Habitat for Humanity. 
And if you've ever done any work for Habitat for Humanity, if you volunteer, you work alongside the people that are actually building their own home. It's called sweat equity. And a lot of people that are building their own home, they're not skilled in doing that kind of labor. These are not experts in home building. But they learn skills and they work hard and they put sweat equity into it. That's the same people who worked on this wall. If you read the earlier part of Nehemiah, this wall is huge. It's broken down. The gates are broken down. I've not been to Jerusalem My son-in-law is there right now. Meredith is actually visiting my daughter and grandson so that he could go. But the walls are huge. And they didn't have proper equipment and they didn't have proper training. And what they had seen is that the Lord, through them, had rebuilt this wall in 52 days. It was a miraculous feat. They had a trowel in one hand at times and a spear or a sword in the other hand at times. And God accomplished this work through them. I don't know how many of you have ever really done hard labor. I know some of you have. I've worked on and off throughout my life in what I would call hard labor situations. But some of the hardest labor I ever did was doing mission work. Because they don't have the proper equipment to do some of the work they need to do. And I remember breaking sidewalk with a sledgehammer in 90 degree weather. That's hard work. I will never forget one job I did. Unbelievable job. This church in the Dominican Republic had one bathroom. And they had like 80 or 100 people, something like that. And they wanted a vent for their bathroom. Imagine that. One bathroom for 80 or 100 people, they wanted a vent? Go figure. And the wall was like two feet thick. And with a chisel and a hammer for like two or three days, I broke a hole through that big. By hand. That was hard work. My arms were constantly tired. It was a labor of love. That's what this was. This was a labor of love. They loved the Lord and they began to understand what it meant to be community. Sweat equity. But now, community was being defined by so much more than something physical. It was being defined by God. By his word. A holy people set apart. Different. And this is what it looks like. So Ezra and his leaders read the law and interpreted it. Let me tell you what that would mean. They would go through the scriptures. And they would come to an understanding of who God is. And what it means to follow him which might mean maybe Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then why did the people fall? What happened to the people? And they ended up coming back. That would be the prophets. And then they would learn what it means to worship the Lord. That would be Leviticus and the Psalms. So that they would have excerpts of Scripture 
read and interpreted so that they would begin to have definition and understanding what it means to become the people of God again. And so many people, even in the church, don't understand that. They tend to acquiesce to the culture more than they do the Word of God and really understand who God is and what God's desire for our life is and how we are meant to be His people and what that means for community. And so we're not often different when we are meant to be defined and different. God's call for God's people. So what did the people do when they heard this? They were open to the word. They were open to God's truth. They had begun to see God work in miraculous ways, rebuilding this wall. They had begun to come together as community. So they hear the word of God because they're open and they weep. They weep. They're moved by God's Spirit. Something is different. It's not just the physical reality of the temple. It's not just the physical reality of the wall. It's true repentance. They weep. You know, for some, they never really grasp that really being moved by the Spirit of God means a deep change, a transformed life. That we are moved deep within by God's Spirit so that we become different individually and we become a different community defined by Him changed by him. And think about the symbol of the trowel and the sword. That we are building the kingdom of God together. And that we are defending each other. Caring for each other. So what symbolically happened physically is now beginning to happen intentionally as God's people. That's what's meant to happen. Perfect? No. If you read the book of Nehemiah through the rest of the way, it's not perfect. But they begin to understand what God's desire is for them. Individually and corporately. And this repentance, by the way, is not about groveling. God doesn't want people moping around, oh, I'm so guilty, I'm so bad. God doesn't want that. That's not what he's after. He wants us to come to a realization that we are sinners in need of grace. That we can't do this in and of ourselves. That we don't have the power or the ability. We don't have the wisdom. That's why he gives us his word. That's why he gives us his spirit. That's why he gave us his son. And that's why Ezra and Nehemiah say, Whoa! This day is holy unto the Lord, which means that we are meant to be about worship and we are meant to be about celebration. Get the wine, get the food, time to party. 
Isn't that interesting? Why is it that people misunderstand that? God is about real worship, real community. Not about groveling. And I love the line. Chapter 8, verse 10, which, by the way, I pray every day. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Boy, if you don't pray that or you don't know that, let me invite you to do that. I like being a joyful person. I really do. I don't want to be an unjoyful person in my life. I like to enjoy life. I like to tease, have fun, kid around, play. Just ask my wife. She still keeps saying she has four children, R3 and me. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy that we experience in worship and fellowship, even for caring for one another. Joy that we experience as we grow in the knowledge and love of God together. And so many people miss it. When you think church is just about the physical realities of life, the temple, the wall, you miss it. It's about so being touched by God's Spirit that your life is transformed. You desire Him. You desire to be defined by His Word. You desire to be joy-filled and worshiping. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus. Jesus is becoming known as this preacher and teacher and miracle worker. And he goes back to his hometown again. And what does he do when he goes to his hometown? He wants to define his person and his ministry by the word of God. He said this passage from Isaiah. This is fulfilled before you today. In other words, this word affirms my messiahship, my ministry, the power of God working in me, in us, in his community. Just like Nehemiah. Jesus in his first sermon would say, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, so that you would understand what it means to live a holy life. Not moping. Not full of dread or judgment or woe is me. Joy, being filled with His Spirit. Jesus in the upper room, I said this last week, twice would say, so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. Even as he's facing the cross, that's why he came. Don't miss it. 
We are to be a different people, a holy people, set apart by God for God. You know, a great passage about what that looks like, Peter writes, Peter the Apostle, but you are a chosen race. We are to be different, chosen by God, a royal priesthood. We have access to everything about God, a holy nation, holy, set apart, nation, unique, different, God's own people, God's own people. Why? So that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know what's interesting about Jerusalem? Jerusalem, a walled city, kind of on a hill. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. You know, when I was visiting the Cushmans in Italy, great experience. We visited several cities while we were there. And you know what I noticed about these cities? Now, this is centuries later. They built cities on a hill, walled. Very similar. Assisi, Perugia, Orvieto, Spoleto, all these cities. On a hill, walled cities. You couldn't miss them. They were like city-states, defining themselves for protection. You know, interestingly enough, the whole walled city of Assisi, fighting Perugia, that's part of the story of St. Francis of Assisi, if you don't know it. Read it. It's really interesting. The point is, we are meant to be that city on a hill. We are meant to be the light of Christ shining in the darkness. We are meant to be the people of God different because it's clear we are God's people, set apart and defined by Him, by His Spirit, by His Word. Because we have a trowel in one hand, building the kingdom of God together. Because we have a sword in the other hand, where we have each other's back, where we defend each other and care for each other. God's holy people, the church. As it was in Nehemiah, so it is meant to be today. Because of Jesus Christ, not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus Christ. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what we cannot. Let's be His holy people. Let's pray. Lord God, so often your church doesn't look much different than the world. Broken, divided. Even immoral. 
And Lord, you call us to be different. You call us to be yours, your holy people, defined by your presence, by your spirit, by your word, transformed in worship. A caring community filled with joy. Lord, I pray this day that we would truly be defined by your grace, defined by your Son, transformed by your Spirit to be your holy people, a city set on a hill, so that others might see what it means to be your people and be drawn to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.